0: vr training platforms like the one developed by fundamental vr and orbis international are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients
1: as you practice each skill the muscle memory starts to develop
0: learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact
2: strap on your parachute it's time for what goes up with sarah Ponzik and mike regan
0: Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team.
1: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg.
0: This week on the show, it was just last month that this episode's guest said this. Big tech will need to continue delivering and the tremendous equity market rally will remain vulnerable to the performance of a handful of companies. Well, in recent days, we've gotten a firsthand look at just how vulnerable it may be. We discuss the possible causes of this and also the outlook from here.
1: And as always, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I trust you saw some crazy things?
0: trust correctly and i have to make up for last week i came a little bit unprepared um so this week i, I came more prepared than last week i can say that mike
1: okay that that's kind of a, a low hurdle to, to clear sarah i know
0: but, <laughs> low bar to clear but
1: uh you you pulled one out at the last minute last week so i i, 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 I give did. it see that that was a nice save but uh anyway you said uh very happy to have our guest back this week i believe she was on the show once last year and Before the world went crazy, uh, and we got her perspective on the velocity of risk and how it has accelerated. Boy, um, that thesis was sure proven true in the age of COVID. So happy to have her back on the show. Her name is Seema Shaw. She is the chief strategist at Principal Global Investors. She joins us from London, where it's a little bit later uh, than it is here in the U.S. So Seema, I don't know if you're in your pajamas or, or what. I've, I've been in my pajamas since March, so it's, it's totally fine if you are.
3: It is my permanent u- uniform these days.
0: Good, 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 good.
1: <laughs>
3: At least uh pajamas from the waist
0: down just in case you have any virtual <laughs> meetings. No one no one will know.
3: Exactly. Exactly. It's important <laughs> that the that the top half is is looking good.
1: The bottom half is always <laughs> pajama bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> See, I I'm going to dispense. Usually I have about a 12-part question that I start with, but I'm going to make it simple uh this time. What a wild summer. I mean, it was the biggest August gain for the U.S. market. I don't know, Sarah, Was it, it's like the biggest August gain. in
0: uh, Since the 1980s. Since the 1980s.
1: Okay. While the whole country was basically more or less locked down in quarantine, how would you explain what happened this summer? And now that we're seeing sort of the bloom come off the rose, what's happening right now with this little correction in, in the uh, U.S. equity market and tech specifically? I mean, how do you describe and explain a summer like that?
3: Yeah, uh, it's been absolutely astonishing. I don't think when all of this kicked off, when lockdowns were announced, that anyone would have anticipated the kind of summer performance that we've seen. I think a lot of the strength was down to three factors. One is a release of pent-up demand that had clearly accumulated during lockdown. So what we've seen is a lot of easy gains. You know, people trying to return to some semblance of normality, and that's propelled markets. And then the other two things is policy. So central banks clearly have you know, flooded the market with liquidity. It has nowhere else to go. It just goes straight into capital markets. So that, that's been key. And then of course, fiscal policy has helped with, with improving confidence. But within all of this, those three factors have driven one sector. Each one of them has gone into one sector, and that is tech. And when you look at the market recovery, it has been driven simply by tech. You know, it's such a narrow recovery. And I think all of that incredible exuberance around the big tech sector, which I have to say we have real belief in. But it went a little bit too frothy. And that's why you've seen this pullback over the last few days. I don't necessarily believe there's any major fundamentals that have resulted in this drawback.
0: Sima, I likely spent the entire months of July and August writing about reasons for this unbelievable tech rally that we saw, some being that many of these companies are beneficiaries of COVID-19. Uh, like you mentioned, they stand to benefit. And the idea is that a lot of these trends have been accelerated by many stay-at-home orders. Well, in recent weeks and days, uh, there have been many reports about one soft bank buying many call options in big tech companies, also looking at small contract trades, seeing tons and tons of options volume from the likes of small retail traders. And I feel like some are questioning if we can actually attribute much of the rally to the fact that these companies stand to benefit uh, and their true earnings potential and their growth power. Is there reason to, to question that narrative, if that at all? How to play in this unbelievable run-up, like, like Mike said, uh, the best August since uh, the late 80s? Or is there more to it than just the option story?
3: You know, I think you just have to look at some of the charts of these companies' performances, and you can see that something weird went on in August. They just, you know, they had performed extremely well through till July. And then in August, they just took off. Uh, you know, the curves almost turned exponential. So I think there has to be something else at play there. Um, and the option story, I think, is key. Uh, It probably isn't everything though. You know, you have to look at some of the smaller orders that went out. They almost dwarf what we've seen in SoftBank. So I think the retail investors, you know, your the Robinhood app, I think that's been a huge driver as well. These are companies that people have been watching from home, seeing how amazingly well they've been performing, and have tried to jump on the bandwagon. The problem is, is that a lot of these investors and new time investors, this is probably the first time that they've um, experienced any kind of crisis and have less ability to try and analyze the fundamentals. So I think this has also been playing out. And it's, again, one of the reasons why you get this big snap up, and then you also get a bigger snap down.
1: You know, one theory I've I've seen floated for the correction in tech is that people are getting more confident that, you know, that we're sort of over the hump of the COVID virus, that the rest of the struggling sectors of the economy, the Sort of value stocks, if you will, or the you know non-tech parts of the economy, the cyclical parts that have really been hurt, are poised to rebound, and maybe people are getting out of tech and preparing to to get back into you know more cyclical and value-oriented sectors. I don't know if I buy that, Sema. I mean, is that do you think that could be what's going on, or was it just you know this tech rally was bound to hit a wall? this melt up was bound to melt down eventually, you know, which, which camp are you on for, for sort of the catalyst behind this?
3: Yeah. So I think, I think this is really interesting because actually I think there's both of them are true. I think the technicals, the kind of momentum that you've seen in the market, the very overcrowding of a sort of these positions evaluations together, you've created um, a story, which is very, very vulnerable to any kind of pullback. And that pullback can come from, either deteriorating uh, sentiment because of geopolitics, uh, but another story is just actually the improving economy and also news of a potential vaccine. It has been a lot driven by very strong demand for these technology companies over the summer uh, since lockdown was announced. And as a result, as soon as you hear news of, of a vaccine, that it encourages people that, look, we can maybe return to a more normal way of life. We will no longer need to be so dependent on companies to deliver our food. My husband was saying the other day that actually he's bored of delivering. He wants to go back to a supermarket. I mean, I don't share (laughs) the same sentiment, but I think he speaks for a few people out there. So, and I think so. as you get that turn to the vaccine, then actually reliance and dependence on technology starts to pull back. And given that all those indicators together were building up an environment of vulnerability, it was almost a perfect storm to create that pullback. Maybe
0: if he goes back to the grocery store, he just feels like his life will be one step closer to normal. (laughs) That's true. I bet you the supermarkets want
1: us all doing that, too. Because I know I went into Whole Foods the other day and I had like a list of three items I wanted to get. And I ended up with like 85 things uh, in the (laughs) checkout line. So I wonder if there's something, you know, there's something about that impulse purchasing power. I wonder that, uh, you know, is being lost in this whole this whole uh, online regime.
3: Yeah, the kids' sweets are no longer in demand as the kids are walking past and demanding their parents buy right. uh, buy things for them. Right. Yeah, right. I've got to say, I um, I made a Trader Joe's run
0: the other weekend, and I left with many more uh, treats yeah. and sweets than I planned on when I went in there because they just, you know, they looked good. We're stuck at home for I, the most part. I needed something extra.
1: Trader Joe's has got to be the market leader in impulse purchases. I.
0: Uh, they know what they're doing with their store layout.
1: You,
3: I can tell you that. You,
1: you go in without a shopping list and end, end up with 500 uh, things. So I, Seema, tell your husband I agree with him. I, I can relate.
3: <laughs> He'll be happy someone does. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, Seema, I know I know it's obviously so difficult to make short-term market calls, but I just want to get your view. Yes, we got a an 11% correction in the Nasdaq in a matter of 3 days. I mean, it was the the fastest correction from a record for the benchmark. Is that enough though to really wash out the froth, this optimistic sentiment and move forwards from here? I mean, you look and we're still, what, more than 60% off the lows for March? I mean, that's obviously not a small number.
3: No, I, I would agree. Look, I think there is still froth in the market. But ultimately, if there's a really strong secular growth story, I don't think that you're going to see significant drops from here. You know, chances are that you're not going to see the magnitudes of increases, certainly that we've seen over the last six months. That's not going to be repeated. But do we expect the market to come tumbling down from here? I'm certainly not a buyer of that idea. And I think, as I said, the reason is, is that we may have increased our reliance and we may pull back some of that dependence on technology, but a fundamental core of that is here to stay. And also in an environment where there is so much uncertainty, we still don't know what's ha- around the corner. You still need companies that have got those really strong balance sheets and positive cash flow, And those mega cap tech stocks meet that criteria.
1: Seema, you know, let's turn our attention to the next big risk, which uh, is on everyone's mind. It's the U.S. elections in November. You and your colleagues at Principal had an interesting note looking at the elections. And, you know, this sort of historical precedent is that it's pretty common for there to be volatility in the market, in the equity market, ahead of a, a U.S. presidential election You know, I don't know what the percentage of that happening is, but it's it's pretty high and pretty, you know, easily telegraphed and predictable. But that volatility often typically calms down after the election when investors have a sense of what the next administration's priorities are going to be, what kind of policies may uh, influence their portfolios. I have to wonder, though, this is a very unique environment leading up to this election. For one thing, all this froth that even after this correction still exists in the market. Also, just the bizarre nature of the the election where, uh, you know, the mail-in balloting will be a big issue. President Trump is already, you know, raising uh, a lot of suspicion, uh, at least he alleges, as far as the you know, how how reliable the vote can be when it's done uh, over the mail. In many elections, it seems like it's almost a no-brainer to buy that pre-election dip. I wonder if, if you think that's the case this time. And also, given the valuations of the market, is that volatility, that dip before the election, bound to be potentially a, a bigger than, than normal one this time?
3: Yeah, these are, these are really good points that I think all investors are, are starting to to consider pretty deeply at this stage. Well, look, as you said, you know, it is still a pretty frothy market. Valuations are still very stretched. And in that environment, you have created almost a perfect scenario where any kind of shift in sentiment can result in a, a, a sudden drop, right? So this is a risk velocity story that we talked about months ago. The thing is, with U.S. elections, typically you do see that volatility, but then the volatility fades and it goes back to fundamentals. So what have been fundamentals driving the markets over the last six, seven months? You know, we spoke about it before. It's down really to central banks, to fiscal policy, but mainly central banks for markets. That's really been key. So, yes, we do anticipate a rise in volatility. Do we think that it'd be the right time to buy the dip? Actually, I don't think it's the right time to try and do any kind of trading around the election because it's so difficult to anticipate and read what's gonna happen, especially in a scenario where you could potentially see the election result being questioned, not just for a week or so, but for even a month or two after. So actually, from our perspective, you're better off just staying invested, You know, look away from all the noise, uh, keep your positions, and keep your eyes on the fundamentals because past the election, coming into 2021, the things that are gonna be driving the market is still gonna be the same stuff, and that's mainly the Federal Reserve.
0: The election is less than two months away. I know I can't believe it. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> coming fast,
1: and, and the results are, or maybe uh, conclusive results are, maybe uh, <laughs> a year away, Sarah. So we'll,
0: we hope. Not. Hopefully, we hope. Not. Hopefully, we get them before
1: <laughs> j- the inauguration day. That's my hope for for this country. I, God help us if we don't.
0: <laughs> we'll see. But well, you mentioned the Federal Reserve, uh, and of course, we have the next Fed meeting coming up next week. So the next really near term risk probably for the markets is there anything that you would expect or maybe you are looking out for that might be unexpected especially after the release of the policy review and the latest speech from Powell in Jackson hole
3: well i think there is one thing that jerome really needs to to discuss and he needs to give some parameters around this new inflation framework that's what people want to know you know what is too high above 2% you know at what point Uh, Do they feel like, okay, this is the time to start pulling back? How long does it need to be over 2%? Uh, These are the things that I think investors need to get a better hold of. Uh, We're also going to be looking out for more information on potential uh, yield curve control, any kind of explicit forward guidance. Although at this stage, you know, having listened to to the various Fed presidents over the last couple of weeks, I'm not sure we're actually going to receive much more news. I feel like they are trying to pull back from providing too much information on anything. Uh, and hoping that actually just the inflation framework itself is enough to get the market going. And I think it may be in some ways, right, because, you know, they've gone out of their way to make sure that people know there is no chance of Fed rate hikes over the foreseeable future. And,
1: of course, hopefully we'll get some uh, more details on this sort of new inflation targeting regime that the Fed has where they – or looking at that 2% target as, as an average rather than sort of a maximum of what they, they would tolerate for inflation. See, I gotta wonder, though, how big of a deal is that if we've struggled for so long to hit 2% inflation, is there any reason to believe, in your opinion, that we are in an accelerating inflationary environment and that we'll really see that average inflation target put into practice anytime in the near future?
3: You know, that's such a good question. You know, I just want to take you out two years ago at the Global Milken Conference, Christine Lagarde spoke. She wasn't yet the head of the ECB. She was still at the IMF. And she was asked on stage, you know, what do you think about raising inflation targets? Do you think that will help countries? And back then, she said she saw no sense. She said, if you can't reach 2%, what makes you think you can reach 3%? And it made no sense to her to move in that direction. So, and I think there is a, there is a clear argument there, right? Why, why, what are they doing which is so special that means that they're more likely to to reach a higher target even now? And I have to say that given all the structural factors that are underway at the moment, globalization, demographics, technology, it's very difficult to come across another reason why there should be higher inflation. And in a way, maybe the only opportunity is if they start to really embrace fiscal spending even more than what you've already seen this year. Maybe that's the only scenario where you see inflation hitting that 2% target and even overshooting.
0: You know, there were some big names this past week talking about inflation. Uh, Druckenmiller talking about the potential for a 10% I- inflation rate. And I know there was a lot of pushback from many investors on this uh kind of along the same lines of what you just said, Seema. I mean, if we haven't even been able to get to 2% all these deflationary forces over the last couple of years, what makes you think that all of a sudden we're going to launch into an inflationary upward spiral? Do you see potential for that at all? I mean, do you see the potential for inflation to even get to the point where the Fed is actually going to step up and say that they are going to raise rates off of the zero lower bound in say, the next five years?
3: I, I was gonna say, what, which, lo- which horizon are you talking about? I mean, the, the thing is that look, we look back to the global financial crisis. Since then, 10 years, the Fed has struggled to even hit the 2% level. Uh, and they have thrown almost everything that they have, and there's still been no, no success there. So actually what they probably need in order to reach a 2% target level is a complete regime change. Now, the inflation framework uh, announcement is good, but it doesn't take you all the way to a new re- regime change. So for me, the idea of sending a 10% inflation result is is out of this world. Look, you have to assume that inflation is fast asleep and is suddenly going to wake up with a bounce uh, if you think inflation's going to hit over 3% within the next couple of years.
2: because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
1: I see. But I wanted to get back to that idea of velocity of risk. That's we talked a lot about that the first time you were on the podcast. I, I find it to be a fascinating topic, and correct me if I bungle my description of of what you mean by it. But it's you know as far as I can tell, it's basically the notion that risks from the economy or f- from markets are priced in much more quickly now into markets than they had been before. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons. Technology, the proliferation of social media being one of them. But boy, you know, as as Sarah points out, in, in journalism, we do we like to deal with those superlatives, you know, the fastest correction in uh, an index ever or the, the you know, f- fastest 20 percent gain, whatever. I feel like this year we've just been filled with with those type of superlatives on both the, the downside and the upside for the markets. And I think it kind of proves your point that, you know, markets are moving a lot quicker than maybe they did in, in the past. What has the, the, uh, this whole crazy year of COVID and the recession taught you, or what have you learned about the velocity of risk from this crazy
3: year that we've had? Well, I spoke to you back in January. Uh, it was when coronavirus was starting to spread, uh, but we had no idea about what was in store for us. Now, the velocity of risk, you know, of course, when we wrote the paper, we had no idea, of course, that COVID was on the way. Uh, but yes, it, it worked out exactly to the point that we we had set out. And as you said, you know, we came into a 2020 with valuations very, very stretched. We had social media being used widely and also enabling the spreading of of news that maybe governments didn't wanna share. Uh, We have technology very, very heavily weighted. And then we had very complex global supply chains, which were able to transmit shocks from one part of the world in one sector to a completely different part of the world in a totally different sector. And I think that's why you saw such very, very sharp movements down. But at the same time, it's bounced right back up again. And we're almost back to where we were at the beginning of the year, if not even more stretched. You know, if we look at some of our own valuation indicators, if you look at the MSCI growth index, you have never, ever been more expensive than we are today. Uh, same thing with the S&P 500. It's never been more expensive. So valuations are still very, very stretched. Uh, even more than that, technology is even, even bigger waiting. I hear people keep using the words uh, during the crisis. It was bread, water and fangs. You know, and I think that just gives the distinction of, of how important it's become. So now we're getting back to the point where any kind of moving sentiment, any kind of large event is really opening the door to a potentially significant move. Now, we don't know what that event's going to be. Uh, this time it was COVID. Who knows what it's going to be next year? But I do think that we've almost learned nothing uh, in terms of policymaking because we're back to where we were at the beginning of 2020.
0: Bread, water, and fangs. I love that. I've never heard that, much, <laughs>
3: <laughs> But it really
0: does. It feels like everything in 2020 has happened in warp speed. And I wonder, I know when you initially were studying the velocity of risk, you laid out a couple of factors that would exacerbate it going forward. Is there any one factor that you feel like really played an outsized
3: role in this year? It's an interesting question. So, so I think, I mean, the clear one was just valuations. They, they were just so stretched that It could have been almost anything that tipped it over. And unfortunately it ended up being, you know, one of the most significant social and economic crises in the world that that pushed things over the edge. I think more interesting was actually what didn't trigger it, what actually helped insulate the drop, and that was actually the proliferation of technology. You know, when we talked about this originally, we thought, okay, look, technology is it's so big that if you have one disappointment from any one of those big companies, it's gonna drag everyone down. What we didn't foresee is that in an event like this actually technology becomes so important that actually that outperforms and it stops the whole index from completely dropping. So it worked in the opposite way, but unfortunately, again, as I said, as it goes back up again, that vulnerability is only increased.
1: You know, Simi. before we get to the craziest things, we sometimes run the risk of being the typical American uh, podcast who's only cares about what's going on in the U.S. stock market. So I wanted to touch on a note uh, you and your colleagues had out about emerging markets in Asia and sort of the legacy of the trade tensions and the sort of anti-globalization and nationalization push that we've seen this year. I wonder, you know... Obviously, there is the the trade war has created a a new set of risks as far as, you know, positioning in in international uh, equities markets, the threat of, uh, you know, politics interfering with free markets, that sort of thing. Walk us through how you're looking at that risk. Is it something that goes away? Uh, Should Donald Trump be defeated in November or is it something um, that perhaps his legacy is that that even if he loses, that type of risk is here to stay, that type of sort of uh, the world uh, being a little less connected, uh, at least according to the politicians and the trade policies. Talk to us about how you're thinking about that issue going forward.
3: So from our perspective, the U.S.-China tensions are here to stay. It doesn't matter who comes into the administration. Um, It doesn't matter if you're talking today, four years down the line, these tensions are are going to be with us for a really long time. So I think as investors, you know, what we need to do is firstly, you you have to, at least from the beginning of the year, you have to have taken away a bit of growth from China's forecast going forward. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of um, investing in, in emerging Asia or certainly investing in China. They still have huge growth potential. It's just a little bit lower than what it was before. The things that we do need to look out for, though, is what does the US do with regards to uh, to Asian technology companies? How much pressure did they put on them? Because again, just as it is for the US, technology is also really important for the emerging Asia region as well. It's a new growth set- sector. They have got a huge wealth of expertise that has been driving forward. They've been taking um, advantage of the fact that there is a growing middle class and there are more people demanding these kind of tech things. So I, I think that's the first thing that we need to look out for. But the second thing, and perhaps this is more important, is is the politics going to start getting in the way of capital markets? And What I mean by that is, do they start to intervene? Do they start to put pressure on U.S. organizations to pull back from investing in China? And if that happens, then, yes, we would have major concerns. And then we would need to revisit this uh, idea that we have that EM Asia is still a long term strategic um, allocation that investors should have.
0: As an example, you look at the TikTok saga going on right now um, that is still ongoing, but I mean, China Tech and its relationship with the United States.
3: That's right. You know, the the intervention almost, it feels like sometimes it knows no bounds. Um, And yet one of the areas is we've seen the trade war move to a technology war. What we worry about is, is the new war going to be moving into capital markets? Um, So are we going to see a lot of firms, pension funds being asked, pull back? stop investing in these Chinese assets. If that happens, then we just have to question um how much strength a lot of these places can have. We hope that's not going to be the case because at the moment there is so much growth potential in that region.
0: Well only time will tell and um as time goes on in our podcast, Mike, I I think you know what time it is.
1: <laughs> nice segue, sir. Very very
0: well. It is that time. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really genuine. <laughs> Charlie Pella, tell us
1: what
2: time it is. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week.
1: All right, Sarah, we haven't gotten many calls to the hotline, so hopefully people are not too shy to call and leave us a voicemail on the hotline and tell us the crazy thing you saw. Um, I did get texts from a friend of mine uh, about a crazy thing he saw. So, uh, John Miller, this one's for you. He's an avid listener of the show, Sarah. He listens to us on, like, double speed, though, which I – and then I think – Whenever I see him and I'm talking at normal speed, I think I sound weird to him. He's like, you all right? You feeling okay? You you, you tired? <laughs> he likes
0: a, a squeaky sped up Mike Regan better. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's weird. So I got <laughs> to work on talking faster, I guess, for, for when I'm hanging out with him.
0: This is only
1: tangentially market related. In fact, by tangentially, I I, I may mean not really at all, but it's so good. I, I want to share it anyway. It's about an art dealer. And as you know, Sarah, art dealers are my, my favorite source of crazy market things. Alternative (laughs) assets. Alternative assets. This guy, Forrest Fenn, a millionaire art dealer, hid a treasure chest holding gold nuggets and precious gems in the Rocky Mountains about a decade ago, just for fun. Just took what's estimated at $2 million worth of gold and gems, hid it in the the Rocky Mountains, and he left not many clues, some, some poem and a map. Uh, this is all, by the way, according to a story on NPR.org. And apparently thousands of people have been out there looking for this 40-pound treasure chest. Several people died, in fact, looking for it. And uh, the crazy news is someone actually found it recently. They have not stepped forward to say who they are, but someone buried 2 million in treasure in the Rocky Mountains. And, and the best part is some guy actually found it using this guy's poem and a map to, to go find it. Again, not market-related, but pretty crazy.
0: You know, this sounds like a Nicolas Cage movie to me.
1: Right. National Treasure. (laughs) It is.
0: It is. Or that show,
1: Outer Banks. My kids are watching Outer Banks, which is a big treasure hunt show. It's pretty pretty good.
0: I'll have to check it out. And remember, if you do want to give us a call at the podcast hotline, that number is 646-324-3490. And if you tell us something good, we might even play it on the next episode.
1: All right, Sarah, your turn. You're in the hot seat. You you hyped up your crazy thing. Let's hear it
0: all right well i figured i would just take a sequel from my last minute last week's entry um so last week i talked about measures of implied volatility moving up with stocks well on tuesday the day that we saw the nasdaq drop i mean close to five percent we actually saw the vxn fall um alongside it which is very very rare uh clearly something odd going on in the connection but also just um an easy one Uh, i'll bring a a, a double whammy this week we always kind of look back to tesla it's an easy one to pull crazy things out of but tuesday down more than 20 percent the worst day in tesla's existence um so pretty wild
1: that is that is pretty wild uh tesla is another source of perennial source of crazy things so we thank them for that thank you elon
0: reliable thank you elon musk and
1: all you tesla short
3: uh, short shorts and
1: uh whatever else uh, absolutely how about you (laughs) sima
3: lost the same value as morgan stanley on tuesday alone
1: that's my it's mind-boggling it's mind-boggling that's a that's a great way to put it in perspective sima like well done sima have you seen any crazy things in the past
3: week so crazier than Tesla, yes. So again, th- this is looking back a couple of weeks in fairness, so it's not just this week. But I thought I'd taking a little bit international. Um, and I want to look at reservations, seated diners and restaurants, and ask you what you think the year in year changes in the U.K. So at the end of August this year compared to last year, what was the year in year change? And just to give you a, a, a little bit of a hint, the U.S. number was 60 percent down on this time last year.
1: Oh, boy. I think for for it to be crazy, uh, I'm going to say they were positive somehow. I don't know how, but that would be the craziest outcome, I would think.
0: Aren't you getting paid to eat out right now? That's right. So is it positive?
3: It is positive. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm going to tell you the number. It's actually, it was up 60%. What? On that time last year.
1: Now, that's unbelievable.
3: It really speaks to the the fact that people are willing to put away all of their health considerations just to save £10 per person to eat out. So the Chancellor had introduced a scheme called Eat Out to Help Out and each diner on a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday was getting about up to £10 off on each meal that they, that they had out. Um, and, you know, I can tell you it was a struggle to get any bookings and we tried our hardest to make the most of it. My husband used it five times in one day. Wow. Five times in one day. He's one of those people adding those seated diners. <laughs> so, wow.
1: So he's saving 10 pounds and going to gain 10 pounds on, uh, on the other end. See what <laughs> he I did saved there?
3: 10 pounds to spend about 200 pounds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That's pretty good. I, well, I wonder, Seema, is part of that because London typically clears out in August and everyone goes to the Mediterranean and, and that didn't happen that year? Is that at play at all, do you think?
3: Well, actually, interestingly, because it's the only few months where London has really good weather, nobody goes away in July and August. We (laughs) all stay here. So actually, usually the restaurant dining is really high in August. So it just goes to show the very, very significant impact that this eat out to help out scheme had. Pretty interesting. It
0: really is shocking. I mean, because I, I know, at least from my perspective, I mean, this past week, they announced that indoor dining can open in New York City soon at 25% capacity. And there are still a lot of people who are very hesitant um, to go. So the fact that in London, uh, seated diners are up 60% from a year prior, I mean,
3: the value of money, right? It, it's a really innovative um, introduction because actually what it does, it reminds people how much they like to eat out. And actually, it reminds them that they, it's not as dangerous as maybe they had in their heads. So it was, it was a clever move.
1: Well, that's a good one, Seema. Sarah, I, we might have to give, it, give uh, Seema the, the uh, gold medal this week.
0: Thank you so, so much for joining us this week from London.
3: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.